I'm Richard Lannan, rides with Canon, and this is the Glazing Insider Industry Podcast. Welcome to the podcast dedicated to the people of the glazing industry. In this episode, I talk with Mark Bromley, who is the CEO of Avantis Hardware and Kubu Smart. In this conversation, Mark talks us through his journey into the fenestration world, all the way through to the position he's in today. So, without further ado, let's get started. Mark, how did you enter the fenestration world? Purely by accident. Ah. I actually met the one of the partners of Fullex in a physiotherapy waiting room <laughs> back in 1989. You could make that up, could Something you? Something like that. No, you couldn't, wow. could you? You're going to ask me what I was doing there? Yeah. I twisted my sock playing football and I needed some treatment. Right. And then, so did you get offered a job? I did. Is that how it worked? That's exactly what happened, yeah. So at the time... Um, Fullex was owned by uh, two guys, uh, Don Fullard, who was the MD, and his uh, business partner, a guy called Barry Glaze, who was the sales director. And I met Barry Glaze in uh, in this physiotherapy waiting room in Wamban, where it was. We were both waiting to uh, undergo some treatment. And we just connected, and, and uh, Barry was a, a, not just a boss, but a, a friend for many, many years. Also, that's a brilliant name, Glaze. You, that's great for the industry, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, <laughs> it really is. Really. So, how long were you working there then? I worked at Fullex for approximately six, six and a half years. Right. And then what were you doing? So when you went into that waiting room, what, what job were you currently working in? Uh, I was, prior to working at Fullex, I... I had my first kind of technical sales role working for an architectural ironmonger in Burton-on-Trent, a company called Construction Supplies. Right. You were sort of getting close to sort of hardware as such, just in a different different way. Yes, I suppose you could say that. Um, I'd uh, I'd been working, I'd been given an opportunity to... Uh, to work at Construction Supplies. Most of most of my opportunities in the early years came by way of football. I played quite a bit of football in my younger days. So I actually I actually got my first job at Construction Supplies through playing football, meeting somebody to, uh, connected with football, and then uh, meeting Barry Glaze right. through a football injury, believe it or not. Right, so yeah, a lot to be said about football there. So going on after the... The Fullex journey. Uh, what happened next? Well, that's when, um, after spending uh, seven years at Fullex, which was an incredibly fast-moving business, they were one of the first UK lock manufacturers to bring out a multi-point lock. I just kind of came to the conclusion that I would like to work for myself and, and give it a go and set up my own business. Right. I'm trying to understand that process as well, because I think there's a lot of people in that position, but... How did it sort of work with them? Were they okay with it or did they just have to accept it? I think that they took a philosophical view and just accepted the uh, the, the desire that I wanted to go and have a go on my own, really. 
there was no hard feelings at the time and everybody moved on. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's good when that works. So going on from that point, starting your own business, where did you start? How did it, how did it sort of form? Because you could get into, some people on this podcast get into finance and how much it cost them to start and, and you know, or was it sort of you had a plan and you stuck to it? I, I discussed it with my wife, Julie. Sensible, and, very sensible. Um, actually, we were on holiday at the time. I got two kids, both in nappies, two-year-old and a three-year-old, and there I was wanting to uh, kick off a new business. I can feel the tension. And, and a business that there was not going to be any revenue come in for at least 18 months. So Julie was ultra-supportive, and we kind of funded it as, as most people would through uh, loans and anybody that was set, foolish enough to lend me any money, I borrowed it at the time, and set up a company called Malenko. Right. And 18 months. So you planned, that's very interesting, that you actually saw that far ahead and you thought 18 months, no revenue. And that's sort of the time frame you gave yourself to, to get it going. Huge risk. Uh, when I look back, I or Malenko, the collective, we should have failed at any one of 10 different stages. And how we got over those stages is 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 beyond me, to be honest. But we did manage to get there in the end. And when you when you started it, then were you were you on your own straight away, or were you straight away having to go in and sort of build a team up, so obviously design products and and make, or did you sort of try and keep that as close to you know your job as possible? Uh, the initial team was mechanical design engineer, a toolmaker, and myself, and we took twelve months to develop a prototype. And prototypes were not the kind of products that you see now. There was no rapid prototyping. They were hard metal prototypes, which cost a fortune to produce. And um, between the three of us, we, despite hitting a few technical challenges along the way, we 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 developed uh, the first multi-point lock with hooks and bolts top and bottom and hooks in the centre case. And that was back in 1995. Wow. And that's, that is quite amazing, really. So not only did you set out on your own journey to, to sort of be your own boss, but you took on another two people and had to find sort of a way of supporting them financially as well. Not quite. Um, ah. The the toolmaker who I worked with had got his own toolmaking business. So uh, the carrot for him was he was going to get the yep. tool in order at the end of the journey. But yes, I did uh, fund the mechanical design engineer all right and the reason i ask that is because some people listen to this podcast they're trying to work out how they can do things and how so the more information i can pull out of that the better uh because it's a lot easier when it's just you and that's sort of there's less risk though and there's a lot of people out there that sort of see it as that as soon as you are supporting someone else it does fuel you and motivate you in a completely different way because that's someone else's mortgage and family that you're you're supporting as well so it's sort of allows you to see beyond just the, you know, this is my job, I just need to earn X amount and that will be enough. You sort of, But that's not how people build companies anyway, which is obviously what you were doing. You know, you, you didn't look at it as just your job. You saw it as growing into a... But did you see it getting as big as it did? At the time, the fear of failure is the biggest motivator. And, and you're quite right, uh, Richard, with with two two babies plus someone else's mortgage responsibilities on your shoulders it, it motivates it, it really does push you to uh, succeed because failure was 
There was no coming back from failure, to be honest. That's interesting. And just I, I also, there's quite a lot there for, just to be said about your wife uh, supporting you for sort of and having that plan of eighteen months because there's definitely some people out there just saying I don't, you know, even I know I know they can be very supportive, but there's were there any times of doubt in that where they she sort of turned to you and said, mm, "Are you sure you should be doing this?" More, more, more opportunities for doubt than there were for success in those early years, but we were. I was also uh, very fortunate. Uh, in as much that I met two uh, guys who were, I would describe as gurus of our industry, uh, the original owners of John Frederick's Plastics, a guy called Peter Cram and Mark Dickinson. Uh, I was introduced to those guys by Halo, by Water Halo. They were Halo fabricators at the time. And they showed an interest in this new philosophy of locking and gave me the verbal commitment that if we developed the product and brought it through into manufacturing, uh, they would be a launchpad partner. So I already knew that if we managed to get through the, the technical challenges along the journey, then I had a very nice customer to set that business up with. And uh, those guys were customers of mine for many, many years. Oh, brilliant, yeah. That, that definitely does help. But again, that was more your connections and reaching out and, you know, getting out there really knocking on doors. Yeah. It, it was, it was through Winston Dugood at uh, Bowwater Halo who introduced me to uh, Mark and Peter at John Fredericks and, and the connection was made from there. You can't really bring a product like that through what was what 25 years ago without having some kind of commitment from a launchpad partner. And those guys were the perfect launchpad partner. No, it's interesting. So what was the next step after that? Well, Avantis was a, a very nice business. It was a small, uh, privately owned manufacturing business. It had a very nice product. It had some very, 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 very loyal customers. And as time went by, uh, I, wanted, I wanted other challenges in business. And I was looking to develop an international business. And that kind of led me towards looking overseas. Right. Which is quite good. That's that's quite a, that's definitely not for everyone. Going overseas and international, it's, it's like a different level, isn't it, really? I didn't know what level it was at the time. <laughs> right. um, I had absolutely no idea. I'd wanted to develop an international business, but kept being knocked back from the UK side. A major competitor to Malenko was Paddock Fabrications, owned by a guy called Richard Harvey. And Richard kept knocking on the door, asking me uh, whether I would be interested to sell Malenko. Numerous occasions, I kind of declined that invitation. And one day he just caught me and I said, right, fine, no problem. We'll do a deal, providing the deal goes through within 16 weeks and it's as least painful as possible to all parties. Richard stuck by that agreement. We did some very quick due diligence and uh, Malenko, which was at the time a very clean business, was sold to Paddock Fabrications, which gave me the opportunity to start looking overseas to develop my kind of international business model that I'd so wanted to do for so many years. 
So what was driving that thought then? What was, you know, that thought of trying to get international? What, what did, is it sort of the entrepreneur in you that sort of saw the, the, the opportunity? Or did you want to change things? Well, during the Malenko days, we developed products that we'd uh, developed products in the UK that were then transferred into China for manufacture. I'd made a number of visits over to China and I'd seen uh, the emerging opportunities coming from mainland China. I was probably too young to be involved in overseas manufacturing when China was at its peak of ROI, but I was still able to pick up some experience uh, during its mature period. And I just knew that to develop an international business, I had to be on the inside of Asia, pushing the product out, not on the uh, outside, pulling it through into the UK. So I decided to uh, give it a go. That's very interesting. So, You've sold your business, got some money in the bank. Where did you start? Was it a similar route to the one before? Was it a little bit easier with, with some more funding, should we say? No, actually, it was it was more difficult than ah. uh, setting up the first business. And what people tend to underestimate is the importance of traction. Because if you have traction, you can scale. But it doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank to start from nothing from the beginning and to scale is incredibly difficult. And it's it's difficult in an environment that you're familiar with and that you fully understand. But it's even more difficult to do it overseas. In hindsight, what I probably should have done was to have kept Malenko, um, put somebody else in to run that business on my behalf, and then investigated the opportunities overseas and used Malenko's scale to grow what has now become uh, Avantis. But that was not what I did. And we started from scratch. Right. Zero. So I'm also guessing you probably had to spend quite a bit of time travelling back and forth and, and being over there to set things up and get it going. Or And how long ago was this? This was back in 2006. So the technology was there. I'm just thinking it's not as good as it, it was now, or it is now, but it's, you know, you had some communications where you didn't necessarily have to, or did you just prefer to be over there and fly? And Well, I didn't know, at the time, I didn't know where there was. Um, I knew that I wanted to develop an international business model. I knew that China was not the right place because I was looking for high-tech low-cost manufacturing environment that was much softer than China. Um, And I knew that China couldn't give me the package of technologies that I was looking for, but I didn't know which country could. So I spent some time traveling through uh, Southeast Asia, and I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Yap Chow Soon, who owned a very small moulding business in Malaysia. And the day I met Yap Chow Soon was probably the best day in my business life. Wow. Yeah. uh, That changed everything. Well, he's a very special guy. There are 
people that go and invest overseas with significantly bigger war chests than I had with multiple millions and they fail because they pick the wrong partner or they pick the wrong time or it's the wrong time and they choose the right wrong partner. I was just very, very fortunate to meet uh, Yap Chow soon. He, he is, uh, we're 15, 16 years in business this year. And not only is he a, just a wonderful business partner, he is a great friend. The best day's work I ever did was the day that I went into business with Mr. Yap Chow soon. Wow, yeah, that's um, that's quite a statement there. I like that. So from then on, where did you start? What product did you start with? Well, Yap had a very, very small moulding business. He had one customer. I think he employed at the time 10 or 12 people with a 10,000 square foot facility just off the, the island of Penang on the mainland of Malaysia. And we started with a technology transfer for Freefoam, UK's leading plastic buildings products company. Right. How did that come about then? That's interesting. Well, prior to Malenko, uh, I had uh, an investment in a uh, plastic building products company called Altrin Plastics with my uh, brother-in-law. And Altrim used to buy their trims, claddings, fascias from uh, Freefoam. So I knew, uh, I knew the guys at Freefoam. And after I'd sold Malenko, uh, they invited us to design and develop some of their rainwater systems and that led to a manufacturing contract in Malaysia for moulding. Right, I see. So that's what it started with. Then it was there, and then which products come along next? Well, after after we'd uh, started to supply free foam, which I might add was Avantis's first ever customer, and uh, is our remains our customer today. So we still supply free foam with all of their rainwater building products. So that's a 16-year working relationship, which is quite special. Yeah, I'm sensing a pattern as well. Um, it was, a, it was a, a bit of a difficult time, really, because we're talking about the period 2006 to 2008 where the, when there was a global crisis. So that's not really the optimum time to be a foreigner overseas setting up a business for the first time with no reputation in that local market. But you did it anyway. <laughs> I had no choice. We were there. Yeah, that I was, was there. So having that connection, again, that was back down to connections and, and who you knew and sort of bringing it over. So you, it's, yeah, I see that quite a bit in business where you do go over and find your connections that you can sort of bridge the gap how many products did you start before you started going down the smart route oh the smart route didn't come around until much later right. so the 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 business model for avantis in malaysia was a white label manufacturing business the the idea was to set up a offshore manufacturing facility that had the scope to manufacture 
a diverse range of products for multiple sectors. So that would include uh, the capability to do mechanical products such as metal stamping, zinc die casting, aluminium casting. So all the mechanical, uh, processing mechanical raw materials and um, including injection molding. And then when the uh, crash came in 2006, that was probably one of the most challenging times of, of my uh, my business life. As I said earlier, I was a foreign investor overseas with no reputation and not many friends, to be fair. And all markets were collapsing. And in the in the region of, of where Avantis was based, uh, companies were closing down by the day. And we were no different. We had two customers. We had, at the time, Yap and I had his original customer. And we had Freeform as a customer. But there wasn't much demand for building products back in 2006 to 2008. Yeah, it did for And yeah. Avantis was going down, 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 down. And it started to get a little bit challenging. And I thought, well, the only, I'm here now. <laughs> and, and the only way to get through this is, is to invest a little bit further. So I've always worked on the, the basis that in turbulent times, doing nothing isn't an option. Do something. Pick your journey, pick your route, trust your judgment and do something. Um, so back in 2006 to 2007, that's when Avantis expanded its primary processes from injection molding to include metal stamping, aluminium casting, zinc casting, and we set up an electronics division, including all clean room. So as the markets were crashing, we were investing more and more and more on the basis that as the markets recovered, we would be in the optimum position to, to take in new opportunities, new business opportunities. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. That's very interesting. What, because... Was there any sort of indication that, you know, you needed to go, what made you sort of, especially the electronics, because it was so different to the, you know, the, the, the plastic side of things and the mouldings. What sort of gave you that confidence to do it? I knew, or I knew, I always felt that a white label manufacturing business needs to, needs the capability to integrate mechanical and electronic product capability. There, we, we had inquiries for electromechanical products in the very early days that we had to turn down because I could only do the mechanical side and not the electronic side. Right. So the investment between 2006 to 2008, if it would have been a purchase, it would have been a distressed purchase. It was... It was a necessary investment to survive. But in the first 12 to 18 months, I'd understood that being a mechanical white label manufacturer, the scope wasn't wide enough. So we needed the capability to build electromechanical products. That's what led me into uh, investing into the electronic side. 
Right, that makes sense then. Yeah, because you were seeing it and literally, yeah, that does sting when you start losing jobs because you can't fulfil everything and you think, oh, yeah. yeah. So that makes perfect sense. When you're desperate for business and and, and you're competitive, but you can only do half the job, then you need to close the loop. And and that's what the investment into uh, the electronic side brought us. Yeah, I suppose it was also good from your point of view to have full control because you could... It just helps everything, doesn't it, production? Because the option is you could have partnered with someone to do the electronic side and then that was another partnership and then yeah. more. Yeah, so very interesting. So where did Kubu come into all of this? Oh, Kubu. We're, we're talking 2008. Um, Kubu was was not even heard of, not even settled in my mind at that point. So the elect as we as we recovered from the crash of 2008 there was a number of opportunities that came advantages way because we could box build mechanical and electromechanical products um there was a local uh, subcontractor to uh, britta the large german water filter manufacturer the the local uh, tier 1 went bust uh, and we were supplying as tier two to tier one who were supplying to Britta and um, we were left with a, a bad debt from tier one um, I'd got the uh, molding and the electronic capability so I uh, picked up the phone to Britta and, and said that, look you, they had a hole in their supply chain and we can step up and we can fulfill that hole. We, we can fill that gap. And um, that's where we started to come through the 2008 crash by combining our mechanical and electromechanical manufacturing scope to supply some large uh, contracts and large companies such as Britta, who we also supply today. So that's been a, a 15-year uh, working relationship. Right, very interesting because, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And also, um, out of interest, did they help settle any of that outstanding debt? <laughs> Is that too good to be in, true? <laughs> in, in all fairness, in all fairness, they were they were sole supply from Malaysia. And what they did was they paid cash with order for 12 months they needed a supplier. We had the capability and we were in the right region. So it was uh, a technology transfer um, arrangement. I uh, I flew out to meet the, the engineers at Britta. I was then introduced to the owner, a guy called Marcus Hankerman, who literally flew back to Malaysia with me three days later, um, did a quick audit on our facility and um, we arranged a technology transfer. And from his visit, um, within 16 weeks, we'd got full serial release on producing 250,000 uh, sensors a month. And that's how I first got involved in manufacturing sensors. Uh, Britta was our first sensor right. uh, supply chain partner. 
And then we're there. So, well, that's a good start, isn't it? I mean, you can't. <laughs> it's not like it. We deserved no, a break at the time. Well, I was going to say. You, <laughs> we deserved a break. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's all the stars aligned on that one. And then, uh, and of course, a brand like Britta as well. There's not many people that haven't heard of them. So, uh, again, that just helps, doesn't it, with the next job and the next job. So, exactly. Yeah. So, after that, who, what else did you do? I mean, gee, now, what direction did you go next? We were invited to tender for many, uh, a number of uh, global super brands, really, who were um, looking for white label. Um, we, we produced four products for Bosch, Makita, Sony, uh, a local uh, manufacturer in Malaysia. Of course, everybody's heard of Sony. And whilst all this was going on, I was also receiving inquiries from hardware uh, manufacturers as to whether I would be interested to manufacture hardware. That was my background of 10 years anyway. Um, although I had no plan to go back into hardware, various inquiries were made and I thought, okay, well, we can, we can do this. We, there was no hardware manufacturer in Malaysia, but we could be the first. Um, we could, transfer the technology from the UK into Malaysia. Um, but I made the decision at that point not to do that as a white label. I thought we'll uh, we'll do that as a home brand. So we'll design again, following on from Malenko, um, we'll design and manufacture our own locking systems. So I got a balance between high volume, lower margin, a white label product and home brand product. Doing it that way, we, we have at least we have a chance to control our own destiny. We've not got to follow the white label strategy and review our contracts every two years. Yeah, um, interesting. So we, we kind of we, we put a balance into the business. On that note as well, how different was it? Because originally with the with the hardware side of the business that you used to have, you were selling to sort of fabricators, I'm guessing, and things like that. Whereas you were going to sort of the likes of Britta, how how were those massive, uh, completely different meetings? I'm guessing sort of teams of, or was it In, incredible learning curve? They are those companies. They truly understand the the value of partners in the supply chain, but you have to work very hard to meet their quality standards and their delivery performance targets. And you're severely punished if you miss those opportunities or you miss those standards, you miss those targets. So there was a, a, a real learning curve for um, efficiency drives, for quality plans, for corrective action protocols. And it was really those larger, big brand customers that Avantis had and still has today that shaped the shaped our factory and footprint in Malaysia and they really did pull us into shape and um, which has stood us in good stead for producing hardware yeah it's interesting though because I suppose it's if you go back to the the, the lock days you could say oh those locks will be with you Monday yeah uh, no this would be a Friday yeah for that example Whereas if you try to do that with some of the bigger brands, I'm sure there'd be fines every single day until... Yeah, every hour. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. it'd just be eye watering there, wouldn't it? So you, you just there's no no, it makes a big difference. Which is probably why not everyone goes for that kind of customer. It's, it's good practice. It, it's great practice, and it it leads businesses into a, a lean protocol. Everybody needs to be on it pretty much most of the time, and and in Avantis in Malaysia, we are we we are blessed with an incredibly uh, capable team led by uh, Yap, who I uh, spoke about earlier. So it shapes the team, it shapes the protocol, it shapes the culture, the work ethic. Everybody's focused on um, just in time, not just late. It's just in time. It needs to be there. So, Yeah, that's good. I like that. So what was next? Are there any other curveballs in there, products that we would have heard of that you started manufacturing? I think at this time, we're, we Avantis had started to establish its... Uh, home brand of multi-point door locks and casement window hardware. Um, we didn't we didn't scale massively uh, in the early days. We needed to take the metal stamping technology for hardware into Malaysia because it didn't exist. So we had to develop the skill. We had to develop the people. That took time. That took uh, a couple of years. But once, uh, once we were comfortable with the outputs, the quality standards, the protocols, we could scale somewhat. And then we started to um, expand our marketing activities in the UK uh, with Avantis Hardware. Right, I see. And then to what year are we up to now? I think we are now around about... 2014. Right. So is this where Kubu started? No. No, no, still not. So I'm really interested now then. So you still got, so what happened next then? Well, Avantis hardware was, we have Avantis technologies, we have Avantis hardware. Um, The, uh, the markets had, had recovered from the crash in 2008 nine, 10, uh, we're getting into the 2012 region. Um, fenestration industry is, is a mature market. It's full of critical mass. It's got margin erosion. You need to maintain competitive advantage. Um, we were, and I believe still are, one of the only manufacturers, which is who is completely vertically integrated. So even from a mechanical point of view, all of our uh, locking systems are designed and developed here in the UK. Uh, They're prototyped here. We prove the technology here in our office where we're sitting now. And then we facilitate the technology transfer over into Malaysia for tooling, seal release, and into manufacturing. It's a, it's a, a full technology journey effectively Avantis hardware is a white label manufacturer Avantis technologies is a white label manufacturer for Avantis hardware but once we'd settled all those uh, quality standards in place we were able to scale implement our our, um, our marketing strategies in the UK but as I mentioned earlier that the market's at critical mass with margin erosion um, other people over the years had come to market with 
good quality multi-point locks and people were looking for differentiators or they didn't want to change product. We got to the point whereby, and I think any hardware supplier would, or distributor, if they're being honest, would agree with you that the difference between one multi-point lock to the other was was not significant. Most people had got hooks, most people had got rollers, most people had got pins and bolts, and one philosophy of locking really shadowed another one. Uh, reliability with multi-point locks was standard. It didn't come with any additional cost. Everybody was looking for differentiators. And that's where that's where we came up with the idea of integrating sensors into our locking systems. But that was only three years ago, three and a half years ago. So right. we're talking 2019. Wow. And what, I'm just trying to understand, what was your, how did the idea sort of what, was it a team effort of sort of putting the ideas together to sort of define the products that you were going to produce? Or was it sort of, because you've got to start somewhere before you can push it out to, to people to get an idea of, of what they want, really, because they don't know, do they, when it comes to smart technology? You have to sort of say, well, this is possible, and people sort of say, yeah, I like that. Well, the original idea has to come from somewhere. And um, my wife, Julie, it doesn't matter when we leave the house. It, it, it can be morning, noon, or night. We'll get into the car, we're just about to drive off the drive, and Julie will say, have you locked the door? I go, have you locked the door? Well, no, it's your turn to lock the door. And we'd get into an argument about whose turn it was to go and check if we'd locked the door. Ryan, my son who uh, heads up uh, Kubu, his wife, Emily, is a school teacher. She'd phone here at 10 o'clock in the morning and say to Ryan, would you mind just nipping home and I think I've left the door open. And the idea of Kubu actually came from our own experiences of leaving doors unlocked as we were leaving. And we thought, well, we can easily develop some sensor technology that will uh, tell us whether we're leaving our doors and windows open or closed, locked or unlocked. And that was the original, that's where the original idea for Kubu came from. Right. Which is very interesting. Uh, also, I think there's a slogan there somewhere, saves arguments. <laughs> yeah, because it definitely happens. That I've been in that situation and I'm always checking doors. So that makes perfect sense. I'm just, the other side to it is, so at this time, 2019, of course, the smart locking has been introduced to our industry. Yeah. But so what made you want to go more down the sensor route as opposed to the smart, you know, because you, you know the capability is technically there, I imagine, because you've got the you've got the both. You've got the hardware. You could manufacture something that would work. But yeah. what made you go down the sensor route as opposed to the, the locking route? A number of large manufacturers had developed and brought to market smart locks, and whether the the industry or the market wasn't ready, they had not really uh, captured the imagination of consumer or the trade um, there'd been some reoccurring uh, problems with smart locking and I took the view that we weren't big enough or my war chest wasn't big enough to fund the 
problems which are related to smart locking. I chose a technology which we were very familiar with, which was sensors. By this time, we were producing over 1.2, 1.3 million sensors per month and had been doing for seven, eight years. So we were comfortable with sensing technology. It, it's, it provided less risk um, and, in my opinion, more diversity. Our smart home strategies were evolving. Um, smart sensing, as opposed to smart locks, seemed to be the, the best way forward. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. So Ryan is your son, and he. when did he join the business? He joined the business about six years ago, six, right. seven years ago, six years ago. And it's as as I'm from a family business, I sort of understand better than most people. But was it, I mean, it must be working quite well because he's still here. Or I'm still here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm still here, which is probably more the yeah. biggest surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, I suppose that's, but so how, what, what's his role currently then? Ryan's uh, current role is um, that he is our group commercial director. So he takes care of uh, all operational issues, UK and commercial issues, uh, Malaysia based including uh, managing the uh, design and development team in India. Um, so he's a pretty busy guy at the minute. He's MD of Kubu and Avanti's commercial director. Right. So when he came into the business, uh, was it... How did that sort of work? Did he sort of come in with a specific role in mind and then evolved, or was it sort of... Planned. You can see me smiling here. Yeah, I can, yeah, Richard. I can. Yeah. There was no plan. <laughs> it's usually the best way, though. But isn't that the case in, in most family uh, businesses? So um, there is a bit of a, a, a journey here, and, and that is that Ryan went to uni. Uh, his, his, his plan uh, was to uh, get into law. He got his law degree. And um, like any uh, father-son family relationship, if you'd have asked Ryan what his dad did uh, when he was growing up, he'd have said, well, I think he makes something somewhere or other, but he's not quite sure what, <laughs> because he was just into football, football and his mates. And, and coming to the point, it was only after he decided to go travelling in Australia, ran out of money whilst wanting to do a quick tour of Thailand, that he phoned me up and asked me to lend him some money. And that, No, that was not the plan. Your plan was to work your way around the world. Uh, that I redirected him with a AirAsia flight ticket into Malaysia, where he had to work for six weeks to buy his ticket to finish his journey and to even get home. So I think that was Ryan's first exposure to Avantis. Kubi didn't exist at that point. But from that point on, he, he kind of 
started to show more interest in the business and um, eventually, uh, with the help of his mother, coerced me into uh, giving him a role in the business, which was uh, to start in the warehouse in Stoke, like everybody has to start at the, at the very beginning. That's very interesting. That didn't please his mother very much, but it was the only way that he was gonna. Yeah, he was going to uh, get get going in uh, in this business. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And it was well, it was slightly different. My mum was trying to keep me out of my dad's business and my uncle's business because she did. Well, we were very. She saw me as very similar, but um, so that's very interesting. And especially starting at the bottom because. Uh, it's very easy. You're in the position to put him wherever you want in the company, but it, you understand how that will affect the rest of your existing team. Again, you're you're from a family business, so in 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 many cases, it it, it doesn't work. Families and business don't work. Yes, uh, Ryan did kind of uh, well. He did absolutely start in in our warehouse in Stoke, and then went and spent six months in the moulding shop in Malaysia in, in 40 degrees and then the metal stamping shop in 42 degrees. So he he pretty much understands the the baseline of the business. And I think really that that's that's the way to start is to uh is is to 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 start at the at the baseline and, and understand what's going on. So Kubu, was that sort of a, a mix of everyone put together sort of to come up with the idea or was it sort of in the back of your mind? No, it, it, it was it was a combination of, of events which were reoccurring events. Julie asking me, have I locked the door every time we go to bed at night? It's your turn to lock the door. So there came an idea, and I, if I'm being honest, I actually think that it was... We we quite often uh, discuss this over an odd glass of wine, but Julie claims that it was her idea um, <laughs> that she came up with the idea of Kubu, not the name Kubu, but the idea. And she might be right, actually. Uh, at the time, uh, there was a key tracker uh, on the market, and we were researching different kind of smart technologies. To, to bring into fenestration. The first one was a key tracker, but we thought that would not really interest too many people. Um, and good job because Apple now have come in with their air tags and that's yeah, changed everything. Yeah, so that would have been yeah, the, the yeah, classic Apple. It was a little bit dead in the water. It was tile, I think. It was the tile. First, yeah. It was, you're yeah. right. It was tile. So uh, we researched tile when tile was, um, tile was first launched and we actually were offered a, a distribution agreement for tile. Uh, which we turned down, by the way. <laughs> but it wasn't a very stable product back then. Um, but we didn't think it was. It had enough substance. There you go. There you know. Yeah. What a mystery thinking. that was. Um, and we thought we could come up with something that was more substantial for our fenestration industry, and that's when we came up with the idea of uh, building, integrating sensors into our locking systems. Um for Avantis and Kumu. Yeah, very interesting. And also, the name's interesting. Where did you come up with the name? Oh. <laughs> There's a story. Uh, <laughs> so that this smart tech 
world is a bit of a tight space. And when we first, we were developing the technology and, and we were probably four weeks prior to Fit Show, which is where we launched uh, Kubu. Um, and every every time we tried to think of a name, somebody else had taken that name, like oh, yeah. Smart Sense, Sensor Smart. It, it, it was just a hot space where trademarks were snapped up quickly. And um, my daughter, Lauren, had got a, has her own uh, digital marketing business. Right. Uh, Lauren was involved in the, uh, in, in the early evolution of Kubu from a marketing perspective. And it was three weeks before the Fit Show. We were sat in this room, six or seven of us, trying to come up with the right name. We'd got pizza, kebab, burger all over the table. It was... Proper brainstorming session. Yeah, yeah. 10.30 in the evening. And I don't know who it was, but somebody came up with the name Kubu. And like the younger members of the team, because at the age of 55, I actually feel like a dinosaur in my own business from time to time, <laughs> like most of the time. And with these young, fast-thinking, dynamic younger guys around, they come up with this name Kubu and we want a techie name. Let's 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 call it a techie name. We've got, you know, we've got Alexa, we've got August. Let's call it Kubu. To which my response was, if you think I'm going to the fit show with a product that's never been heard of and calling it Kubu, no chance. I was just dead against the name Kubu. And it was Lauren with a kind of uh, digital background, marketing background, who said, look, Dad, if, if you, you'll give me the fund, she said, I will, I will position, we'll launch Kubu and we'll position the brand at the Fit Show and it will work. We can, we can stabilise that brand at the Fit Show. And so that's what we did. It was it was down to uh, Ryan and Lauren's marketing, mainly Lauren on the marketing side at that time. She really did position Kubu at the Fit Show, uh, launched that brand. We had a Kubu band. We had Kubu everything, and um, and it worked. I didn't think it would, but it worked, and. Um, Within 12 months, I think Kubu is, is probably one of the more recognized smart brands in, in the fenestration industry. And that's how we got the name of Kubu. Very interesting. They tell me that in Malaysia, it means... Oh, no. <laughs> fortress. Oh, that's a, that's a, all right, though. That's a good one. But what it means in Rugeley and Tipton... I have no idea. <laughs> I thought that was going to be a side note that it's, uh, it means something that we can't say on this podcast. No, no. <laughs> but we don't, and that's really good marketing if you're doing that one. So, um, yeah, that's that, you, know, you put a lot of trust in there, in your own flesh and blood and money. You put the money where your mouth is. Yeah, well, a, a, a number of customers. We did a pre launch, actually. We did a, 
we did a pre-launch at the think tank in uh, Birmingham. That was that was a very uh, that was a nervous day. I, I'm 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 not one for parties or don't get me wrong. I think I'm a fairly sociable type of a guy, um, but setting up. I'd never done a pre-launch before and, and inviting all the customers to the think tank in Birmingham to launch Kubu to our existing customers, our Kubu partners. So all of all of Avantis's existing customers were invited to become launch partners of Kubu. We took them to the think tank and that's where we launched Kubu and then we took it to the Fit Show. And I think it was... Uh, it was Roy Frost from uh, Listers and GJB who said to me, look, Mark, we know we've bought locks off you for so long. We know that the product will be good. He said, but for the first time in your life, will you please spend some money on marketing and at least tell people how good the products are? He said, and then maybe we can all make some money out of this. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah, we. that was the, probably the first time I've ever really invested any serious funds into marketing. And you did it all with £175. And out of change. Yeah. <laughs> if only, if only, yeah. that's simple. Yeah. Wow, yeah, though, that makes that makes perfect sense. I'm sort of, with all of that in mind, that's quite a journey, to be honest. So, Smart a journey. Well, that's it, and it's it's. Well, let's face it; it's it's not going to end. It's only going it, to. It's got to carry on for its for the sake of for our industry. Of yeah, for our industry. Smart is a journey no different than than the heating industry hive and the heating engineers have been on a uh, a smart journey their journey has taken five years for smart to establish in that sector uh, in the fenestration industry i'm not sure that people totally appreciate the fact that we are in the early days of smart as kubu and avantis we happen at the moment to be at the front of it We've got to work hard to stay at the front. But smart is a journey, but it is evolving. It's evolving rapidly. And it really does kind of simulate what happened in the heating industry with Hive and the boiler manufacturers. Smart is almost standard in that sector now. And we're not too far away from that being the case in the fenestration industry, I would suggest. That makes perfect sense. Very interesting. With that in mind, then, your whole journey, two questions. The lowest point in all of that journey, is there one that sticks out for you? Well, I kind of referenced to it earlier. I think the one of the, what I call it, the low, yeah, it would be the, the lowest. You could describe the lowest or the most challenging. I think the lowest is, is, is fair. Was that period in 2006 to 2010, when Yap and I had set up Avantis in Malaysia and we were in the middle of that global crisis and, and we we were falling like many other companies. We were almost uncontrollably falling, uh, free falling. And um, that was a hairy experience. But once you're in, you're in and, and you've just got to, you've just got to dig a little bit deeper and, and I'm not the most talented or gifted person in the world, but I am up for a fight uh, in the right context. Uh, and 
we 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 kind of put a little bit more investment in, and um, and we just fought harder, and 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 it worked for us. That that was a that was a low. That was low and lonely mm. because the, you've not got many friends as a foreign investor overseas. So the other side of that, the highest point, is there a high point in all of that journey that sort of sticks out for you? I would say that my my highest point from a, a, a fenestration or a business yeah, perspective. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that uh, maybe not a bit more lighthearted after quite a, a deep uh, <laughs> a deep five minutes there one of one of my i would say the highlight for me in uh fenestration industry is uh being invited into the gm fundraising charity bike riding team right, yeah. i just love that and it does good oh good it was fantastic gary morton who I'd known, who I've known for a long time. I mean, who doesn't know Gary? He'd asked me on a few occasions to uh, would I be interested in um, joining his charity uh, bike riding team? And I, as you can see, I'm I'm built for comfort, not speed. So I I am not built for cycling. But he persuaded me on on one occasion to give it a go, and uh, and I think the first. The first time I got involved was on the uh, Route 66 bike ride. It was just a fabulous experience. From a fenestration experience, I loved it. You know, I'm, I think I'm a team player. I love the crack. I love the banter. Um, the camaraderie is just a different level. And I actually thought that all my sporting achievements were long behind me because what's that, 10 years ago? I'd be about 45. I thought all anything that I'd achieved in in sport was long gone, but that was a having ten years working with Gary and 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 his um, GM fundraising team was something quite special. Made a lot of great friends, uh, some great relationships, and it's just it's just great fun. It's hard work, but it's good fun. Brilliant. <laughs> with that in mind. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question now, and then you can open this up to the, the whole of the industry if you want. But obviously, you spent quite a bit of time with some some of your friends there, and with all your contact within the industry, which one would you, if you had to, you stay on a desert island for two weeks? Who would you stay with? Just one of them. Are you in a position to answer that question? <laughs> that was such a curveball. Sorry, I am doing it. it this is the first time I'm asking this question. It popped into time. my head. Yeah. Okay. If 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 I can answer that question. If if I was to spend a week, was it? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, no, that's harder, isn't it? On, Seven days most people can get through. On a desert island. That's like I an all inclusive holiday. I would choose to spend that two weeks with Alan Rothwell from Patterson Rothwell. He is a legend. Interesting. In our industry. And if you if you ask if you ask anybody who's been in this industry for thirty years or more about Alan Rothwell, he is the guy that I believe most people 
would want to spend two weeks on a desert island with. Interesting. Right, I'll have to track you him down. You now need to research I do, Alan yeah, Ruffler. I do. And we see who his guest is. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's a very entertaining guy. He's the only guy at the age of 65, I think he's 65, I'm not doing you an injustice there, Alan, who can drink until three o'clock in the morning, and wake up at six o'clock, come down for breakfast, uh, like nothing's happened, and then ride 120 miles on a bicycle. Amazing. Through the desert. He is a legend. Yeah, that's definitely like the opposite of me. It's <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of most yeah, people. But, yeah, well, I just, I admire that so much. There's no comparison, really. He's just an all nice guy. Brilliant. Well... Mark, thank you very much for your time today. No, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure I'll have you back on at some point. I say this to a lot of guests, so if not all guests. Uh, but uh, And we'll see what the next part of the journey okay. has in store. So thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Mark. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this one, consider subscribing. Otherwise, thank you for listening. Until next time.